Maybe don't know. Maybe don't know. This time, 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 this What's up, everybody? I am your host, Chris Hampton. Welcome to episode 73 of the Power Company podcast brought to you by PowerCompanyClimbing.com. I am here at uh, Power Company headquarters in Lander, Wyoming. And um, if it sounds a little echoey, because a lot of you know that I'm a stickler for this sound shit, and it's driving me a little crazy that it's echoey in here, it's because the office is brand new, the walls are still bare, um, well, eventually I'll be surrounded by books and I'll have some acoustic panels up so that I can record in here without all this echoey. So you probably can't hear it. You probably don't give a shit, but that's, that's my, the bane of my existence right now. Anyway, uh, power company headquarters, this new office is exactly 34 seconds down to the machine shop. Yes, I did measure it. I did time it. And that that includes putting on a pair of Evolve Cruisers at my front door and walking into my garage. So uh, Machine Shop is where I'm training now. It's our new training space. Um, if you guys come to Lander, want to do a session, that's where we're going to be doing it. And uh, it's important to me to have this office and the Machine Shop because I'm just kind of jump-starting my own training again after nine months of really not climbing much and certainly not training because I've been putting so much effort into the podcast and into the business and making it something that can sustain me and my lifestyle. So um, I'm back at it and I'm documenting that for the patrons over on the We Scream Like Eagles podcast, uh, which you guys can join if you want to for a dollar a month or more, depending on how valuable you think we are. Uh, and you can do that at patreon.com slash podcast. And I'll be doing at least bi-weekly episodes talking about my own training, how things are going, detailing the reps and sets and all of that for all you training nerds out there, um, as well as how it's feeling and what my thoughts are. Um, anyway, speaking of training nerds and people who just can't get enough of this. I was just looking through our iTunes uh, reviews. And if you guys haven't done that, please go do that. I would love it. And um, I haven't highlighted one of these in quite some time. Um, but there is one that I wanted to highlight. And uh, it's from my friend Zach Rudy. He says, as far as I'm concerned, this is the only climbing podcast out there worth listening to. And I appreciate that, Zach. I disagree with you. I listen to all of them because I'm a junkie. That's really what it comes down to. And there's some cool new ones, and maybe we'll talk about those soon. But there's some cool new ones out there. And uh, Zach, congrats on the baby. Congrats to Katie as well. And uh, hopefully I see you soon in the machine shop. Uh, it's open. So hit me up. Okay, today's guest is a good friend of mine. Uh, by the name of Russ Clune, and I realize that some of you may not know who Russ Clune is because you're either youngsters, you don't pay attention to the history, uh, whatever it is. And there was a time in my life when I didn't know who Russ Clune was. That was eons ago because I do pay attention to the history, and I think that's important as well, but we'll get into that at another time. I, I remember laying on my couch reading the new issue of either Rock and Ice or Climbing. I don't remember which it was. And I think the article was titled The Peripatetic Russ Clune. And I was blown away by the life this guy had led. Uh, he had, At the time, I think he had traveled to 35 or 40 countries, something like that, to climb, both for early comps, um, back with Todd Skinner and also as a regular partner of Wolfgang Gulick and Jerry Moffitt uh, and that whole crew of legends, and as well as Lynn Hill in his home area of the Gunks, where uh, along with Hugh Herr and Jeff Gruenberg in 1983, and Lynn, of course, uh, they established the first 13 in the East in yo-yo style, which we talk about a little in this episode. 
And uh, he also climbed 514 in the early 90s when 514 was a, a brand new thing in the U.S. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, I think, I think Russ's strong suit and what anyone who knows Russ will connect him with is that he really values the friendships and the people that he's gotten to know and climb with through all of this travel. And, and he recognizes the importance of that for his climbing and he's a natural storyteller i think that comes through in here you can also check him out on the enormo cast there's a great episode with russ over there um so i'm going to jump into this episode with my good friend the peripatetic russ clune maybe don't know maybe don't. this time this time this if you're going to keep on enjoying climbing you have to have fun and if you're around fun people that makes a big difference you know it's just not that much fun if you're around people that you really wouldn't be around otherwise this time There, there are slabs here in the red? Uh, best roots in the red are slabs. It's a great secret. Nobody ever is on them. You might be right, actually. <laughs> Some of my favorites are definitely slabs. What is your favorite slab climb in the uh, red? You know, it used to be probably Swahili slang. Right. But I think Wicked Games at Roadside is we, my new favorite. Wicked Games is awesome. It's it awesome. never gets done either. No. No, it's, and it's hugely reachy, yeah. which was super fun for me. Two big cruxes, like, two yeah. big moves in the thing. I yeah, there's that. some massive moves for me, which yeah. is super, even for super me. cool. Even, yeah. even for me, I remember that's like, oh, that's, it's really weird because you do that. I remember that route, like just, it, you go up and all of a sudden, I remember there was two fixed beaners on the thing and each one signified yep. where, the, <laughs> where yep. the move was going to be. This is where no one gets passed. <laughs> Somebody yeah. got past the first one, but not the second one. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, I think when I... I went back and did it this year after trying it eons ago. Yeah. And there wasn't a spot of chalk anywhere. Oh, I'm sure not. And I remembered this giant spider that lived in the little Waco at the top from yeah. the first time I got on it like a decade ago. And I swear it's the same spider still lives in there. <laughs> it's enormous. And I don't think it's seen a human being since since I went up it. You know, one of the problems, that thing suffers from where it sits. Because that, that yeah, left totally. side of roadside, nobody ever goes nobody there. Nobody goes there. And it's yeah. beautiful over there. Yeah. Yeah, if that, if that route was like anywhere I could load or drive by or any any popular crag, it would get it would get done all the time. Yeah, totally. or at least get attempted all the time. Yeah. yeah. Have you been up that Gene Wilder thing at the no, chocolate factory? It's so funny that that has suddenly become a popular route because that thing had a reputation. Uh, I remember passing by it several times, and uh, it always had that reputation of being yeah, it's kind of supposed to be like pretty pretty bouldery cruxy and the bolts aren't in the right place yada yada but now it's apparently quite popular because it was stacked with people today getting on it yeah it's really good it's kind of heady like you're you're making some big runs between bolts on some kind of hard moves and it starts out with a giant move it which, looks like it that undercling pocket with the left yep, hand totally. yeah you can see that thing's gonna be a big move yeah I, I guess Super adrian cool. i don't know i don't know his last name emily harrington's uh significant oh, yeah, yeah he's a uh, starts with a b Anyway, yeah, he, he's a he's that's his first uh, 13A project. Oh, nice. Yeah, I was like, well, that's an interesting one to pick. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Came right. to the red to climb the slab routes. Did you hear what they did on Cho OU? On what? Cho OU, 8,000 meter. Oh, no, no, no. Cho, Emily and Adrian? They, uh, in two weeks, they flew over to China, went up there, climbed it, and skied down it, and were home in two weeks. Skied down it? Yep. That's insanity. But, and they waited for the weather window to get their flight, and they flew over there, and they just like, yeah, we're going to do this right now. Just they, made it happen. They did, two weeks. A weekend it's, warrior approach. It's like cragging. Cragging. 8,000-meter peak cragging. It's crazy, man. <laughs> like, that's pretty... Like, I don't think it's going to happen too many times in your life. Yeah, yeah. And you know, that kind of that kind of leads right into what I want to talk to you about. And, and it's really, you know, like I told you, this podcast is about progression and your climbing and, you know, how to get better, mostly, not just training. Right. And... Of all the climbers I know, you're one of the most well-traveled and have been for a long time since before people were really traveling for climbing. In fact, I think you probably traveled before the wheel was invented. Correct? <laughs> yeah, we had to row those boats with the Vikings. It was kind of a pain in the ass. But <laughs> yeah, you, you... Slave ships and such. You went to Europe your first time on a pterodactyl. <laughs> but, uh, and I think it's super important for your climbing, like to... 
to travel to new areas and climb with people who see it differently than you do and to climb on new rock and learn new styles. And I think that's all rolled up into this one huge important part that a lot of people miss by just staying in their home areas. Oh, I would, I would agree for sure. You know, I, I was back when I started traveling for climbing, it wasn't got, you know, today the, the resources you have, you can figure out just about any place pretty easily within an hour yeah. just doing some web searching and, and you probably get a connection there to you know make the whole thing go smoothly so it's a bit of a different world and and why people wouldn't at this stage i mean considering how many places have opened up to climbing that it, it's it's a matter of just wanting to break out of what becomes familiar and easy right and that's really one of the biggest challenges i think is deciding to do that but there's no question about it the more time you spend tra traveling around and climbing with different people in different cultures on different stone you can't help but progress it might not be a grade progression per se you might still find yourself like whatever you come to the red and you're good at climbing steep 512s or 513s then you, you end up in uh you know the mellow valley in italy and you're climbing granite slabs suddenly or and right. it's, it's gonna be horrendous but You'll find if you develop the techniques on that different kind of stone, it will in the end better better your technique on steep stone as well. Yeah. Even though, it, and maybe in the end you can only climb, you know, first time I don't know five eleven slab on granite. Well, that, that's pretty stiff, you know. Even yeah, by, no doubt, it's for real. So, yeah, I think the more it's going to develop your techniques, it's going to give you more more uh, tricks to pull out of the bag when you need to. And plus, I think as important as anything, it keeps it interesting. It yeah. just keeps it super interesting. Yep. Do you, what was the first time that you traveled a long way to go climbing? Um, my first uh, overseas trip uh, for climbing was in uh, the summer of 81. And I went with my girlfriend, Melinda. We traveled uh, to Europe for, I think it was about f three to four months altogether. And we started off now, there wasn't, you know, the place we knew we were going to go climbing was England. Because England, okay. as far back then in 81, uh, this is before there was sport climbing. It was just rock climbing. You know, you basically right. took your gear and you went. And England was the only place really in the world that had climbing that was recognizable to us as Americans as free climbing. So this okay. is still in the day pre, you didn't hang dog. You didn't wrap down roots beforehand. You went, it was yo-yo, the, the year, the, the, the world of the yo-yo. Right. Uh, so you go up and you place gears, you fell off, you came back down and, you know, can the next person top ropes to that point and tries to lead. Further. Right. Yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, that's how, you know, that's with some small variant, that's more or less how everybody climbed in Britain. And the grades, even though the grading system is totally different, mm -hmm. you know, the, the grading, uh, the, the level of climbing, free climbing was very similar. So you'd find very good British climbers like Ron Fawcett and Pete Livesey were the hot, top dogs of British climbing at that time. Right, right. Jerry Moffat was just up and coming. Right. And uh, they, uh, so that was, that was the, that was the logical place to go. So I think we spent our first, uh, more than a month, basically camped at Stony Middleton, climbing on the limestone around around that peak district, climbing under the uh, climbing on the uh, gritstone. We we traveled down to the southwest and climbed on the granite down there, and also the sh some of the sl uh, shale. But uh, it, you know, Britain was fantastic because it did have climbing that was recognizable to us, and it was uh, the stone was different, but it was still kind of similar. It wasn't that different from uh, what I was used to in the states? Yeah. Did you climb with? Ron Fawcett and Pete Livesey and those guys while, never while you were Livesey, out there? Never with Pete Livesey. I met Pete, but I never, I never climbed with him. And uh, I climbed very briefly with Ron uh, just, uh, you know, I think it was at Froggett. We ran into each other and climbed a little bit, and basically in next to each other, but not really with each other. But that trip, I would end up climbing with Fawcett, but wasn't there. It was in France. Okay. Um, what we weren't we didn't have a real agenda but when we were hanging out i think we were in wales at the time and there was a climbing magazine we were looking at and the front cover was this pocketed wall with somebody on it and it was called talked about this place in france called bukes yeah yeah like, yeah. and uh -huh. we we're like oh we, we should go check this place out and later on in that trip we would end up down uh at bukes and as before it was a sport climbing area again this is all pre-sport climbing right so what you had where you had yes there were some bolts here and there not the way you would think of bolts now, but right. you know, quarter inches or pieces of crap. And there would be pitons in the cracks. And uh, most of the climbing was basically in the crack systems. So okay. Ron was I wasn't a, even aware there were crack systems in these. <laughs> yeah. There, there, there were. <laughs> and uh, Ron was there with his wife at the time, Jill. And uh, there weren't that many people around. So we ended up climbing. Ron and I climbed a few routes to, together down at that place. And and you know the top top of the scale at that time down there was about twelve A or B. You know that's about mm -hmm. as far as it got. Sure. But it's uh, but nonetheless, 
we learned, yeah, I learned about climbing on limestone, which was great. We climbed sandstone in the faults of Germany. Where Had I you climbed limestone in the U.S. at all? Um, believe it or not, yes. When I was a student up in Vermont, University of Vermont, we had a, a, a small railroad cut that went through this, okay. this piece of dolomite. Yep. So we actually climbed on that slick as snot limestone. Yep. So I, I, it's kind of embarrassing to say about that. Yes, that was my introduction to limestone. <laughs> actually, one of the stones I grew up climbing on. Yeah, yeah. cool. So, but, you know, and Stony Middleton was kind of, as far as limestone goes, kind of similar to that because it really is an old quarry, a mm -hmm. bunch of it. So you had, you would have these crack lines in this limestone. It's, it's, uh, you know, very polished, but anyway, you know, it was, it was a new kind of stone to climb on. Yeah. And they've got the slate quarries and all those things. Yeah. The slate quarries well. weren't, yeah, the, the slate quarries in Wales weren't happening quite yet, but there okay. was actually, um, these shale cliffs, uh, actually, who was it? I think, uh. Shale just sounds like it falls apart when you climb on it. It can, yeah. We climbed the first crag we went to is a place down in the southwest called Black Church, which is a seaside shale cliff with a friend of mine, a Strapo Hughes, who now lives in the States. He was a mm -hmm. British climber living over there. Um, and it was actually kind of horrifying, but fun. <laughs> you know, it's, it's got some, it, it does have a character. By I mean, today's standards, most of the climbing from back then is horrifying. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, some of it can be, but it's, it's, hey, look, it's still in vogue. Look at yeah, people yeah, are still yeah. going, it's, it's awesome to see people it's, it's go It's a out. new cool thing. It's a new cool thing. Dangerous back in vogue. <laughs> Just not too dangerous. So do you remember like, okay, I know when sport climbing sort of first happened over here, was that after you were traveling for comps in Europe? Because I know you went over and did some international comps early on. Is that right? Yeah, I did. Well, the, I, I did one comp internationally. Well, two. One in Russia and one in... in the first one was in 1985 in Bardanecchia. And that was the first international sport climbing competition. And I was... The that was with the American flag tights and all that? <laughs> well, no, that was Russia. That was a speed okay. climbing contest with, with, <laughs> with Skinner in Russia. That was awesome. That was actually... That was, that was a hoot. That was a much different experience. Um, but... At that time, so that was 1985, uh, sport climbing was fully, you know, it, it was embraced. It was done in Europe. You know, it, it, the big change in Europe really was happening uh, in 81, 82. By 83, it was, you know, it, Bukes, I remember the second time I went to Bukes, uh, you know, things had changed so much in just a few years. Right. It, was, it I mean, had already sprouted bolts everywhere. Uh, everywhere, everywhere. And I had my first taste of it. Uh, of the idea of sport climbing, it, this, after we left Britain on that first trip, the first place we went to, again, because we saw it in a magazine, was the Rhineland Faults in Germany. Yeah. And it's a sandstone area, which anybody who climbed here would, would recognize it. You know, it's a, it's a sandstone not dissimilar to what you have around here. And, in the red. In the red. Yeah. In the red, yes. So people, um, there was a war going on. There was just like you had almost everywhere. It was the old, the old guard, and yeah, there was the new folks debate. who were actually putting bolts in. Yep. And uh, I, I remember that trip. I mean, that was the first place I saw people hang dogging. You know, and and I was like, what are they doing? And <laughs> I tried it out, and I realized, wow, this is really pretty smart. Because yeah. I mean, if if what you want to do is just accomplish difficulty, there's no doubt. I mean, right. You know, Absolutely. It, it shortens the learning curve substantially. Yeah. And I think some people, you know, a lot of people who are listening to this may not even realize that that used to be a extremely frowned upon thing here in the U.S. was to hang on the rope and work out moves. Yeah. If you were called the hang dog, it was pejorative. You were just, yeah. it, it was, and in some places it would get you, you know, literally tossed out of the Right. Out, of, out of the community. Yeah, there but, have been fights over it a number of times. So, You know, when you think, if you think back um, to the mid to late 70s in the States and things are being done, like oh, a great example, Tony Anero, when he put up Grand Illusion, right. that was 79 or I think, so. I think nine. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he, he leapt the scale from right. essentially 12D to, 12D to, to 13C. 13. Right. And it's because he dogged on that thing, but... You know, a lot of the powers that be at the time uh, really wouldn't give him credit because the, I mean, the excuses were, well, he trains too much, or he, you know, he hangs right. on the rope, or <laughs> or he's Italian. <laughs> you know, it's whatever. But Tony was a totally, totally good guy, and uh, you know, yep. he just had his way of doing things. He didn't really pay a lot of attention to what other people had to say about it. He knew what he wanted to do. Yeah. Did he and, pick that up over in Europe as well? Well, you know, the way I looked at it myself was uh, I would do whatever the local custom was. So sure. I didn't really have my, 
like even though I dogged on routes that even that first trip in, in Europe, like I, I would have done that in the vaults, but I wouldn't have done it in Britain. Right. And I certainly wasn't going to do that back in my home, Craig in the Gunks. It just, I, you know, there was a, this is one of the big things. Again, it's different. You know, if you think about, uh, I, I don't really think this is a, a big leap in the progression, but you know, the, the way we climb those routes as at, in that, in that old style of yo-yoing, um, it was this team effort, right? So you'd have sure. you'd have several people working on a route, and I think it built a camaraderie that I still kind of miss. Because mm. now, you know, if we go to the crag together here at the Red, and we go down to Motherload, and you might be working on that 13C, and I might be working on that 12B, and it, and we'll totally hang out. But right. and we might you might be spraying me beta on my my project we've done for a warm up or whatever. But it's not it's not the same as when you're like trying to get to the top of something and you don't really know what's coming up next. Yeah, totally. And it, it just created a different, and I was saying, I don't think either one's better. There's, there's different. And, uh, uh, not that I would go back to, to what I used to do. It's just, uh, but. No, I and, think that's a really interesting way to look at it. I hadn't ever thought of that, but it is, you know, I've, I've worked in that style. In fact, my old partner and I, Ray used to, we used to call ourselves team yo-yo and that's, we thought we were this, you know, these guardians of the old school here. And that's sort of the way we approached routes. And, and, and you're right. There is definitely a camaraderie to, you know, approaching the unknown together as opposed to the way it's pretty much done now, even though it's super social now, you're right. There's not that same connection. On top of that, you guys were picking the widest cracks you could find. So you're just totally trying to beat yourselves. (laughs) That was all that was left. (laughs) Martin Hackworth would be proud. He would. Yeah. He would. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, anyway, it's it's uh, it's it is what it is. It's the old style of climbing, and but certainly now, my God, you know, I look around, and uh, today's a good example. You just go down down to the crag, and there's just people really doing pretty good jobs of climbing, you know, mid range five thirteen stuff pretty quickly, and mm-hmm. that's you know that's pretty proud. It's a uh, Again, you know, there's uh, there's so many folks out there who can climb well, but I always wonder too. I, it's somebody asked me that question recently: is what's, you know, what do you think of how hard people climb now? I said, well, you know, in anything, you got to look for what's the inflation. What like to me right now, if you're climbing mid range five thirteen, that's about the same as climbing mid range five eleven in the late nineteen seventies. Okay, because it's, well, it's true if you think about the top of the scale. In you know 70, 79, yep. we've been thirteen C. There's one, yep, totally. and there's a couple of thirteen A's, but mostly twelve C D is as hard as it got. And now right. it's hard, 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 hard. Right. So if you're climbing eleven C, that's basically the same as climbing now about fourteen B. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you're not saying that fourteen B is equivalent to eleven B in difficulty. No, you're just saying that that's where you are on the scale. Exactly. The yeah. amount of people who are climbing that grade, totally. it's going to be about the same as the amount of people uh, as a, as a ratio of, yep. of who's out there. Yeah, absolutely. But, and I remember, you know, famously Alan Watts, you know, who basically is the grandfather or the father of American sport climbing out at Smith rocks. Uh, we were both presenting at an American Alpine club, uh, meeting in 1986 and there was this panel out there it was like basically you know hang dogging sport climbers versus the traditionalists and those right is this like the great debate the that great happened de- yeah exactly the great debate and the one comment that alan made that basically made the entire uh, audience shudder is he just said hey man 513 isn't that hard <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> and and i was nodding and saying you know he's right it really isn't that hard because people are climbing that great even though it was hard at the time how much training we were really doing to do that and how much, you yeah. know, it, there was, you could see that it hadn't been formalized yet. And now look at, this is part of your business too. You, there's a formalization now in the training for climbing and how you go mm-hmm. about it. Totally. And the way that's being treated, I mean, there are so many resources for learning how even just reading climbing or a rock and ice magazine and, and Neil Gresham's articles, he, the guys obviously thought about it from a scientific methodology, as right. have you, and that makes a huge difference. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and I think I think that's something really important to take away. Um, you know that Alan Watts had figured out back in 1986 that a lot of people are still just learning today. You know, if you look at Europe, they had it figured out a long time ago, and that's why you go over there and 514 seems pretty normal. Yeah. And and over here, even here in the red, where, which is one of the most popular sport climbing areas in the country, 514 is still pretty hard. There still aren't a ton of people climbing 514 at the crag. 
Right. And but I they'll be there very soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'll it'll get there quick. But people are still people are still in that mindset that 513 is really hard here. Right. You know, and I, I think that's something important Alan picked up from the Europeans and, you know, you guys all picked it up as well. You know, it's for me it's as funny as it's, it's a shift it's a shift in paradigm. For me, 513 will always be a difficult grade. I mean, we put, you know, Lynn Hill and Jeff Grunberg and you, her and myself, put the first one up in the East in the Gunks. And, you know, in 1983, 513 was pretty goddamn hard. You know, right, that, was a, right. that was a top-end grade. It would be equivalent to putting up a 15A now. Yeah. So it was a it was a big deal to, to do that kind of a route. But the, uh, in fact, when you think about it now, it's not really that hard. But it was. Yeah, for sure. But being able to, what I've always found difficult, even though I know in a very analytical sense that it's not that hard, thinking about it, it's like, that's pretty hard. I mean, that's, <laughs> I still think it's 513 as being hard. It's not because it's physically, well, at this point, yes, but it's not because it really is physically that much of a challenge for most folks in, with a generally good level of climbing fitness. Mm -hmm. But if you can break it out of your mind as being hard, boy, you've beat it. I mean, that's a, you know, it's basically your, your mental state on this stuff yep. counts. Uh, you know well if your brain can do it your body will yeah and but you have your body has to help your brain along i sure. think to, to some degree and i remember having a conversation with sonny trotter around the time that i just started to break into 513 and and we were talking about uh i don't even remember what route maybe cutthroat at the mother load mm -hmm. and and i said to him well 513 still really hard for me and he was like man 513 is still really hard for me too you know? <laughs> and i was like that's really cool to think about you know because he's such a nice guy <laughs> yeah he's such a nice guy and he lied to me he's but canadian <laughs> he can't help it he's but nice. it felt good to think about you know that yeah 513 is actually difficult climbing yeah and and it's not you know it's not that the average person is going to go climb 513 but if you look at it in this broader sense and approach it as something believable yeah. then it's becomes a lot easier totally oh there's no question about it i mean absolutely you know when i was uh when i was kind of finishing up my full-time climbing career and decided i need to do something with my life i decided to go back to grad school and i thought i was going to go to school for exercise physiology so i went down and i went to a couple of uh symposiums and uh listened to a bunch of people talk about stuff and i got involved with this one guy who was doing a, a sports psychology uh program at teachers college at columbia down in New York City, and he totally altered where I thought I would go. I thought I was going to be on the physical side of it, but then I uh -huh. thought everything he was talking about with athletic performance made so much sense to me that, that I kind of ended up taking that path instead. And it was really interesting. I, it, it One of the things that people think often is that, okay, yeah, I'll just positively think about how to do these things. Or, or, but what I realized after learning about uh, more about psychological aspects of, of, of performance is it's really a lot of work. I, yeah, totally. In some ways, it's much harder work than physically training for things mm -hmm. and getting your brain around stuff and trying to break habits that have in some way or another gotten in the way of your performance. Yep. That's a tough, tough nut to crack. And yeah. not everybody can do it. I mean, no. A lot of people cannot do it. Yeah. And that's tough in a, in a relatively simple sport. Yeah, you know, and in a sport as complicated as rock climbing, it becomes exponentially even harder. Yeah, yeah, agreed. So when when you were in Europe seeing these this hang dogging, how long did it take before you started bringing it to America? Before you were doing it here, where it wasn't necessarily accepted. Um, I think I think the first thing I did in the states. In the gunks, it was probably eighty. I think it was eighty. I think it was eighty-five. After you I don't came. have to incriminate yourself. Here. No, no, there's no incrimination. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know, he wasn't. Well, one thing we weren't doing we, at home, we weren't like rap bolting stuff. Right, right, right. And uh, that would get to be an issue in the gunks. Uh, uh, that uh, became enough an issue that the, eventually the Mohawk Preserve, which owns the cliffs, basically said, okay, we're a nature preserve. We're not going to have people like chopping trees and wrapping yep. down and drilling holes. So they put the kibosh on it in 86, I think is when the policy changed. Yep. But, and some areas should stay that way. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it, there's a, even though I can think of some things in the gunks would be benef benefit with a bolt here and there to make some things go. Mo most of the stuff in the gunks be can't, 
lead it because it's too scary, you can usually top rope it. So right. not always, but usually. But in any event, uh, the first thing I remember doing in that manner was a route at Lost City that I called Thunderdome. And it, it still had natural gear on it, it had nuts, but I basically worked the thing from the top down and then did it in a, in a red point ascent style. Right. So that was the first one, and I did a couple of other ones like that. Um, but, you know, funny enough, that was also a time when Scott Franklin and his, his uh, gang, Jordan Mills and uh, Alan Diamond, were, were getting involved with uh, doing some hard routes. And uh, Scott was a pit bull, man. That guy was strong, and he mm. was committed. And he, you know, in a way, he, he uh, took uh, the next route that would be 513A in the Gunks was his survival, for, survival of the fittest. Right. And he did that ground up. He did that ground up, you know, old style, didn't, uh, didn't know shenanigans. Showing that it can still work. Showing it can still work, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, then he'd eventually solo it, so he basically... <laughs> yeah, and you know, I think that's that's really interesting because Scott did come from kind of a new generation of climbers, you know, the next generation after you. Yep. And and I think we're kind of seeing that right now with Adam Ondra, who, who comes from this next generation um, after Tommy. Oh, and Alex Migos as well. Yeah, yeah. Did I tell you the story about what Stefan Globich told me this summer? No. This is uh, so background. Stefan Globich was in my era, at least in the comp world. In the uh, he's a little younger than me, but not a hell of a lot. Uh, He doesn't look as good as you, though. He looks a lot better than I do. My God, he's aging (laughs) a lot better than I am. I think I think he's probably just hitting fifty or so. But anyway, he. you know, super strong uh, German climber, basically coming up right behind Wolfgang Gulick at the time. And uh, he, uh, he, he, he did really well in the comps. He was a, just a super strong climber, beautiful climber, really naturally technical, just very, very good. Yep. Anyway, I was visiting with, he came in to New York this, uh, this summer, he was visiting up in New Paltz. We were talking about Alex Migos, who, you know, Alex basically these days is, you know, if the guy can find something he spends more than four, four burns on, it's pretty impressive. Right. And, uh, and Stefan said to me, he goes, you know, what you're seeing here, Alex is the first of the tip of the spear. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, he's the first to come out of the new training regimen going on in Europe. And uh, he, he said, you have to understand now the kids who are in these programs, uh, they're, they're young. They're, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old. And by when the November starts until the end of February, they're never allowed to even touch rock. And they have a program which builds on power and power endurance and endurance. And he goes, for endurance, they will have days where they go to the gym and they will do 100 pitches of climbing in the gym from 7C to 8B. <laughs> and I said, no fucking way. I don't believe it. And he insisted that that's, how, that's what they do. They spend 14 hours at the gym. And, you know, I mean, that that's that's 12D to 14B. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it's insane. And, you know, they've got a, especially like where Magos came up in the Franken era, they've got... I didn't realize the advantage that they had out there until I was listening to a podcast with Magos and he mentions kind of casually in it that the hardest 300 or so routes in the Frankenura are 14B and harder. Yeah. And in the red here, we have what, six or seven, maybe 10 at the most 14Bs and harder. Right. You know, and, and most of those are hidden and unpublished and off the map. Yeah, you know, but there's the, the, 300 of them over there. It's it's a great point. You know, it's, I think this is this is true for Europe in general. Still, it's uh, the amount of people who climb and and the way that uh, climbing is set up in Europe. It's almost like it's like like little league baseball or or uh, you know pee wee football, right? Or, you know, pop Warner football here. I mean, it's kind of that kind of a thing. It's very regular. It's like you know kids mm-hmm. play soccer and they go to the rock climbing gym, and that, that's beginning here. You know, it, we we know how many gyms are popping up everywhere, right. and how many you know there you know folks like you who are putting together programs, people who really want to progress and get better. Yeah. These options now exist, but they've existed in Europe for a long time, yeah. a long time. And there, a lot of the climbing areas are near population centers. Now, you know, if you think about some of our major sport climbing areas, and the Red being the biggest one now in the states, population center Lexington, right? Part, you know, no. I mean, yep. it's a drive. Now, you know, the Frankenura. Look around. Look at the cities within an hour's drive. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's millions of people that can go to the Frankenura in no time. So it makes a huge, huge difference, and it's no surprise they've had a way bigger head start on it. So we don't have anything like the population of climbers. European climbers are still, to this day, just 
light years ahead of where American climbers are in general. Not specifically. We have some great American climbers, obviously, but the population base mm -hmm. of people who, it, as you know, if you go to Europe and you see somebody climbing a 514B, it's like yawn. They're warming up for their 15A project. Right, it's right. Not, and there's not there's like one or two of them. It's like the ropes are stacked for that warm-up 14B. Yeah. How how soon on those trips to Europe did do you think that they started to kind of shift your the paradigm for you? Uh, I think that next time, I think it was 84, something like that, when I was back in Bukes again, and, and uh, the place had sprouted all those bolts, and all of a sudden there were, I mean, you know, there were roots as hard as, you know, it's like hard 13s. I, I, right. You know, I, I'd gone from my last trip to Bukes, I did the hardest roots of Bukes. This trip to Bukes, I was getting shut down on, right, right. on stuff left and right. Like, I mean, the improvement level was was huge. Yeah. And, uh, and at that time, there were only... A handful of easy 513s in america yeah. right yeah there weren't there weren't tons and they right. were spread out you know they were they were not they were not everywhere so and but we were also still climbing at that time we were still fighting over whether or not we we're going to have sport climbing and you know by right. 80 84 85 you know i think uh smith was the only place where there wasn't a debate right also there wasn't like a bunch of the old guard that i know of anyway that was trying to fight to maintain some legacy of you know the past i mean mm -hmm. it's it's just move on you know? yeah no doubt so have there been any trips for you to europe where you can remember taking some specific lesson that you were able to bring back to a project or to a crag or some objective that you might have had something specific that you carried back to well, Definitely. you know, I think I think the biggest the, the biggest one is what I mentioned before, and I saw people hang dogging in the in the faults, and mm. uh, and how much you know that changed what uh, what I saw I could do. The other one that was big, though, I think there's another thing that's really important for getting better. When I made those trips to Europe, I would try to hook up with really good climbers. Yeah, you know, I think and that's huge. It makes a big difference, and I spent an enormous amount of time with Wolfgang Gulick, and that guy was just a powerhouse, and. You know, watching him climb, even though he wasn't the most elegant climber to watch, he was one of the strongest. I mean, he was just a mm -hmm. bull, and he could uh, he could pull on stuff that was amazing. And I think that was that was an important factor as well, as much as anything else, is being with somebody who is going to push you. You know, it's always you know, climbing with somebody who's better than you. You're just going to up your game. It's, yeah, totally. You can't help but see things in a different light, right? You know? And I think you know, in the states, I had a bunch of you know equals. But right. you know, in Europe, I had a bunch of people who were going to push me hard because they were better. They were yeah. really, really good. That's pretty cool. Did you go over there specifically seeking that out? Um, you know, that's a good question. And I, I think the real answer to that is probably no. Uh, it, it, it just kind of naturally happened. And it's um, since the scene was so much smaller than as far as just general amounts of people at the crag, you... I, you just found yourself with people, you know, you'd find, see a bunch of folks and it's like, who's climbing, you know, around the same routes I want to go do. Yeah. And then that, that's how it would often end up. And with Wolfgang, we were, it, it was mostly people who were fun too. Like Jerry Moffat was a totally fun guy and his whole gang at Hunter's house uh, row up in, in Sheffield. I mean, that whole place was, was completely nuts, but there were a bunch of good climbers, you know, Martin Atkinson and Andy Pollitt and Chris Gore and that whole, there was a whole bunch of folks who just became part of that community. And that's, so it, it wasn't that I was seeking them out because I want, it's like, you know, sensei, make me a better climber. Right, it was, right, right. It was just because they were friends and they happened to be really fucking good climbers and, and they were fun to be around. It's, it, that is, I think, another thing that's so important is if you're going to get, if you're going to keep on enjoying climbing, you have to have fun. And if you're around fun totally. people, that makes a big difference. As opposed to, I mean, I, you know, it's just not that much fun if you're around people that you really wouldn't be around otherwise. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. So here's a thought that I hadn't really put two and two together until now when you were talking about Jerry and that crew. How many different types of rock and different angles and different styles did that crew have within a couple hour drive of, of where they were based? Uh, that's, well, you know, they, so if you think about that peak district area, there's still the two principal kinds of rock you're going to have are going to be limestone and you're going to have grit. 
The gritstone, uh, even though the edges have uh, some distinct characteristics, it more or less is a very similar kind of climbing. It's a technical, very you know, very footwork intensive kind of climbing for the right, most part, right. and it really. It, you know, gritstone and rets are some of the most technical climbing you'll ever do. Mm-hmm. So they had that. And limestone was very varied. So you'd have things from the quarries that were, you know, verticalish stuff. And then you'd go up to uh, Yorkshire and then get on, you know, Malham Cove and you go to Gordale Scar. Those things would be steep. So you'd, you'd, you'd have some variation with that for sure. And plus, you got to remember the Brits went to France all the time. Right. They, you know, I think Pete Livesey once famously said the future of British climbing lies in the south of France. And okay. uh, for for a while, he was yep. correct on that. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Now, what about like Jerry had these crazy projects? I know for years, and and Jerry and Ben kind of traded off, you know, the hardest routes of the times. Yeah. And in my head, those were always these big steep things. Is that true? Or well, if you think of um, uh, what's Ben's route that Alex just did, it's over Hubble. It. Which one? Hubble. Hubble. Yeah. I mean, that, that turns out that that thing's brutally hard. Is it long? No. It's basically like you know, 30 thing, feet yep. of, of heinous climbing uh, at Raven Tor. Raven Tor. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Um, so they weren't always big, long routes, but you did get some bigger, longer routes uh, at Gordale and Malham, especially. And Malham would be, end up being the place where uh, those, you know, those 514 routes would, that's where they'd get them. Gordale, I think, ended up not as much. Ron Fawcett did a bunch of Gordale. Uh, that we're uh, basically in the five twelve, easy five thirteen range, mm-hmm. and but Malum would be where the big longer routes. But you know, Raven Tor was that's classic because the, the that that crag has a lot of climbing on it that's steep. But you know, the bottom part of it is where it's steepest and has the most technical, the least amount of yep. holds. That's that. Yep. So the end of the short, heinous boulder problems into you know bigger, almost well, comparatively speaking, jug halls. Yep, and those guys were doing. I know they were doing a lot of bouldering like in these little caves at the base of roots. And, you know, I remember reading Jerry's book talking yeah. about these heinous, ugly traverses that they used to do and little, <laughs> little roof routes or whatever. Um, so I, they were climbing on a lot of different angles and rocks and, yeah. you know, they weren't necessarily just sticking to one thing like steep overhanging red river jug halls or something. No, like that. no, no, no. And if you think about it too, it's, uh, and all, all those, it doesn't really even matter what generation you speak, at least the ones I'm familiar with, is what the, what the great climbers did was they went around to different areas and challenged themselves on the hardest routes of those areas. Yeah, so, good point. They would come over here and tour, like Wolfgang did and Jerry Moffat did. And, and Elanger, when he made his trip to the States, yep. and you know, basically went around and basically just kicked everybody's ass because before people were getting serious about training and sport climbing here. Yeah. Not that we didn't have great climbing, but <clears throat> it's like, uh, yeah, what do you mean? This is hard. I mean, I can hang on this hole for like five years. I mean, this is not very hard. So, yeah. and, and plus, you know, even they'd often be like, yeah, they can't place gears. Like, yeah, they can place gear well enough. They can hang on forever to figure out placing gear. So oh, it's, yeah, totally. And I think, you know, that was the same argument that a bunch of people were making about Adam coming over to try the Don Walls. Well, what does he know about climbing on Yosemite granite? You know, it took Tommy seven years to figure it out. How's he going to do it in a month? But he did. And, Amazing too. I mean, yeah. big, big ups to that's, you know, I, but I don't know Adam. I've never met him, but uh, he, uh, he certainly did his homework. Yeah. And, uh, and well, I, I think he's found out it was even harder than what he thought it was going to be. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, that, that, what a project. Crazy. Yeah. And I, and I think maybe, the fact that he didn't, and this is totally me guessing here, but I think maybe the fact that he didn't romanticize Yosemite granite as this impossible to climb on rock that a lot of the the older generation sees it as made it a little more believable for him. And he's climbed on so many different types of rock in so many different situations. And his his level of climbing literacy is so high that that he can just figure it out faster because he believes it and he understands it. And it just wasn't as daunting for him as it was in everyone else's heads. You know? Well, and yeah, also you're absolutely right. It's, and also it's not like he'd never climbed on granite. That guy's bold right. super hard stuff on granite. Yeah, so he, exactly. he understands the medium and, you know, I mean, it's also another, you know, signature of great climbers. It's, it's, if they look what the project coming up, it's like, it's not, if I can do it, it's like how fast can I do it, or how you know, will mm-hmm. you know how much how much work is this going to take? 
And, uh, you know, there's no question. I'm sure even the, when Adam came here, I mean, again, I don't know him, but I'm going to guess that he was pretty damn sure he was going to do this thing. I mean, there's going to be an oh, element yeah. of doubt in it, but yeah. it's four, okay, it's 14D. I've been doing a lot of granite bouldering. I've been practicing my thumber clings. You know, like, <laughs> I've onsided 14D. I've onsided so, 14D. Yeah. He's only got two pitches of 14D or so. Yeah. But I don't, I, I'm sure he didn't uh, underestimate it, but at the same time, having climbed three letter grades harder than that in the past and... Yeah, you know, I mean multiple fifteens. Uh, it's like you know, it's in your wheelhouse. Yeah, if you got the totally. time and the weather works for you, it's in your wheelhouse. Yep. And another important thing is he came over without a big ego. Like he, he went and said, "I need to learn how to Jumar better." Right. You know, and tell me all you can tell me, and let me go up there and try to figure out how to climb on this stuff. And he he took it from a humble place and i think that's super important when you were first going over to europe and climbing with wolfgang and jerry and all these guys who were you know the top climbers in the world at the time and you were one of the top u.s climbers were was there ever a time where you had to consciously just set your ego back and be like let me learn from these guys or did oh, it just fall they, right into they kicked my ass constantly <laughs> <laughs> it was it was not a problem no it, it's uh but you know what you find, e even with the best climbers, there were days when they sucked. You know, sure. Some, some yep. days where it just wasn't falling together, and you know, there'd be the odd day where I'd climb pretty dang well compared to them. Not often, but that's their consistency was, you know, it, it's it, they were great climbers. But I, you know, I mean, for sure I had an ego about my climbing, but at the same time, it wasn't that. It was, I, I, I was always open to, how the hell did you do that move? How did you figure that out? Right. And, and you, for sure, I, I think it also was very motivating to watch just some of the things uh, jerry's tenacity the uh, that guy he was a pit bull he wouldn't give up mm -hmm. it wasn't you know he feet would be flying and arms flailing but he would just somehow or another stick to it and I, it was amazing i yeah. just it was just even his smile looks a little angry every time i see it <laughs> well you know, he was a fantastic competitor he yeah. really was an amazing competitor um and, you know, from Wolfgang, too, Wolfgang was much different. Wolfgang did not really like competition climbing at all. It was not a place where he enjoyed it. Um, but he was a master of figuring out how to do really hard roots and hard boulder problems. So he, he, he was a great at projecting stuff. And, right. you know, I mean, obviously the guy who invented the campus board knew a thing or two about how to, how to get powerful. Yep. And he did. So... So it's very different. So yeah, I mean, if in, on any given day back in that time, I would happily take Wolfgang's pure power and Jerry's tenacity, and <laughs> you'd have a combination would be you know, unbeatable. Yeah, but, totally. And there were, I mean, there were tons of other folks like that too. But there, well, not tons, but there were other climbers of that merit, uh, merited the same kind of uh, accolade. But you know, those guys are two that I hung around with a fair bit, and they were, yeah, I have. If you, if you weren't learning from somebody, then you were just, you were wasting your time. And I would, yeah. I would hope we all try and learn something or at the crag these days, watching somebody good. It's like, wow, what are they doing? What's their body position? What, how, yep. you know, that's, it, you know. Yeah, down to the small things. How do they approach their climbing day? You know, I think it's, I think it's important that you went in with this humble attitude as well. Like, yeah, I'm a good climber, you know, but. I can learn something from these guys and I can learn something from this rock that they're climbing on and the way they approach it. And I think that's a really great way to look at it that, that a lot of people, especially in the middle grades tend to forget, like you get to five twelve, you think you're a badass cause you're climbing five twelve, <laughs> and nobody can teach you anything, you know? And I think that's a, a super easy mistake to make and you don't get to those higher levels you know, the 513s, the 514s, whatever, you don't get to those levels by having that closed mind. No, no. Because those I, guys are all learning from themselves and from you. Sure. They, they, of course. Of course they are. It's, you know, it's, it's, the other thing too is, you know, you, for most folks out there, you have to decide too, what, what do you want from climbing? Like, why are you doing it? You know, and, and, and that's a different, you know, it's very easy to sit here as climbers, like, you know, how much you've progressed in your climbing in the last 10 years. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? Right. You've, you've just come, a, but you also had a plan about what you wanted to do. You had exactly. a goal. There, I would guess at any given climbing area, and people always want to climb harder, but how much do they really care about climbing harder? It's a social activity. It's being outside or yep. in the gym or just having fun or meeting people. Yeah. So, 
at that level, you have to decide where do you want to go to? And also, do you want to do what needs to happen to get there? Mm -hmm. And if you actually explore that, for a lot of folks, be like, you know, I'm really kind of happy top up in five eights. Or, yeah, that's or a little not. more than I want to put in. Right, you know, whatever. right. But if you want to make that progression, and it's really important to decide, well, what is that goal and what's that for? And also, why do you want to do that? I think it's a really important question that, that we need to ask ourselves. It's like, okay, is that what reason is that for? What what gratification am I getting out of that? Is that something that's going to be, it's it's really growing myself, or is it just about being better than whoever? You right, know, right. It, it, those things matter because that, if it really is a self-motivated thing, if you see as an improvement. Uh, that gives you great pleasure, that makes you feel better about yourself and that also extends into other parts of your life, fantastic. Work yeah. at it. Make it happen. Yep. If it makes you a bigger asshole at the crag, guess what? You're, you're on the wrong path. Yeah, no doubt. It's not helping you. One of my Australian buddies, Mike Law, used to tell me one of his great quips was, uh, you know, the only difference between the 5'8 Bumbly and the 5'13 Bumbly is the 5'13 Bumbly thinks he's better. <laughs> 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 That's a good point. Yeah, totally true. No, and I think I think you're exactly right. I remember being asked by my friend Kyle, you know, what 14B I was going to do after I'd done 14A. And I said, I don't know that I'll ever do 14B, you know. And he's like, oh, you totally could. And I'm like, yeah, I think I probably could. But I don't know if I want to put that kind of time into it. Projecting. Like I, I think I'm happy where I'm at. And I, I have other goals and other parts of climbing and in other parts of life. So I don't know if I'll ever put that kind of time in, you know, and that's just a choice I'm already making. I'm someday I might change my mind. I might go try 14B, maybe 14C, who knows? But right now I see my time going other places. So, which is totally fair enough. Yeah. I mean, for, I, mean I, you know, I, I, obviously at this point in my life, I totally get that. It's, you know, it, I think for a lot of folks, and if you are looking to progress, like if you're sitting there, whatever grade level you are. And uh, you'll find the inspiration, and the inspiration often comes out of looking at a route and saying, "Whoa, yeah, that thing looks really badass." Now, yeah. you know, I think a mistake that people sometimes make is if they're a competent, whatever, five eleven B climber. If you're looking at that thirteen B, you know, you could very well just be putting yourself in a position to completely and utterly start to hate the sport. Right. So, it, unless it's a far off distant goal right you know? yeah, sure yeah i want to check it out wow that's really freaking hard and come back and check that barometer once in a while and see where right. you sit on that thing yep totally but you know it's it, it but you know there, there are folks who are able to project with with no problem for a thing for years i mean i've i mean the longest i ever spent on any route was 10 days over six weeks and the only 14 i've ever done and i mm -hmm. and it just about killed me to spend that much time working on a route yeah. so yep. it's yeah, but some folks are totally comfortable you know working yeah. for years on on climbs and well, I guess to a certain degree, Caldwell and Donwell's a pretty good example, yeah, I guess. Yeah. And I've had long campaigns like that. And, you know, a lot of it was brought on by the fact that I'm a, or I spent the, you know, the whole beginning of my climbing career, the first 20 years as a weekend warrior. Right. And I had pretty much bumped up against this place here in the red where, okay, I could go do a couple more 13 Bs really fast, or I could start working on something really hard. Yeah. You know, that's a great point you just brought up. And I, we didn't talk about this, but it's, uh, you know, it, in my era, the, the greatest pleasure I ever got out of any routes was always on sighting stuff mm -hmm. going up and, and, uh, and that, that some people really do still love that. And some people don't care at all about it. Yep. But that's another place too, that, uh, man, you know, on sighting stuff, uh, that has still has the same kind of thing in a progressive manner. If you want to uh, get better at your on-siding skills, well, that's another place you can really work on it. And, you know, to your point, suddenly you're doing, okay, I can do a 13B really fast. Uh, can you do one first try? You know, even, right. you know, Andre, same thing. You know, we want to go, go do a 9A on-site. That's a big deal. And it doesn't have to be 9A. It could be, you know, 7A. It could be yep. 6C. Well, it, you know, whatever whatever it is for you. But yep. that's, And I think I, travel's important for that because, like, I was running out of, you know, by the time I was to the point where I thought maybe I have a chance to onsite 13B, I'd either tried all the ones here or I'd seen people climbing all the ones here. So I had kind of run out of 13Bs in my style to make an onsite effort. It's on. true. It's true. You know, I, so traveling is huge for that. I think the greatest pleasure is really, the, the, the my greatest pleasure is going someplace brand new that has a bunch of routes at the yep. grade level I'm climbing that I've never been on. 
mm-hmm. and that to me is like ice cream to a baby. It's it's uh, yeah. I I love that more than any other anything. It doesn't really matter what the style of climbing is. I just see a bunch of climbs in that grade that look really fun. Yep. Then that's that's I, I that inspires me beyond. Now for some folks, no, but. You know, I, again, I think as far as progression goes, it is what's what's the inspiration for you? What yeah. is it that's going to make you want to do it badly enough to go through everything you need to do to do that route? Yeah. Do you know how many countries you've traveled to to climb in? I, uh, you know, I have this. I think Brittany Griffith and I have a competition going at this point. But I was gonna, I was gonna ask you if it was more than Brittany or not. I, I, that's, she's pretty widely traveled. She is, and she's gone to some crazy ass places I'd never yeah. even consider going to. But it also like, you know, what what what's a country? I mean, you know, is sure, the Soviet sure, Union sure. a country anymore or did I climb in Ukraine and Russia? Right. I did you know, is Czechoslovakia a country anymore? Or did I climb in Slovakia and the Czech Republic? It's somewhere around fifty. It's it's in that ballpark someplace. Cool. So but I no, it doesn't include like Oman and Sudan. <laughs> <laughs> right. Maybe a little less third world or fourth world stuff. Yeah. Well man, I wish you many, many more countries and many more long on-site trips and you know getting what you love out of this because you know you're you're one of the good guys out there i love seeing you at the crag i love seeing you wherever we bump into each other so well thanks chris i feel the same and uh congratulations on getting people motivated and getting them trained up and helping them get to where they want to be I oh really, thanks man it's cool stuff to do yeah it's, it's super fun for me and thanks for sitting down with me thanks buddy man i could listen to russ clune stories all day long and there are days where i have actually uh, th- big thanks to russ for sitting down um you know russ is russ is a legend in this game like i said so i really appreciate him taking the time to sit down and have a conversation with me um we were at dario ventura's house and there was a party of sorts going on in the other room so he could have probably had way more fun doing something else so i appreciate that uh, you know i don't consider myself a widely traveled climber at all not even close and while I plan to change that I know that some of us out there just don't have the opportunity to go to Spain or France or South Africa or Norway or whatever it whatever it is um, and learn those those styles and see those cultures Um, but even if you don't I urge you to you know take short trips around the states Um, even in your own state it could you know there are hundreds and hundreds of scrappy little limestone crags around around the u.s and if you can get to one of those and your normal rock is sandstone then you're going to be a better climber just for learning how to climb on limestone and just learning that style you know if you get to another area watch the locals see how they do things you know watch what they bring to the crag or how they conduct themselves or what their warm-ups are and you know, just try to pay attention to what's different about the way they they structure their days versus how you do at your home crag. And pay attention to the little subtle differences required to climb on that type of rock or that style. You know, is it more pressure on your feet? And how much pressure do you have to put on your feet to keep them from skating? Or, I mean, there's all sorts of subtle differences you can really tune into and learn a ton about climbing because of um and honestly it's the same in the gym you know pay attention to what's going on in there if something feels awkward figure out a way to make it better um that's just part of becoming a a more well-rounded climber you know you can do it without tons of travel though i think it's a really important thing to do when you have the opportunity so again Thanks to Russ. Um, I believe he's still guiding in the gunks. And you can find him, I believe, at alpineendeavors.com. Um, you can schedule a trip with him out in the gunks. And, I mean, if I were you, I would do that. I think it's pretty amazing, and the guy's got amazing stories. I think it's great that we can climb with the legends. So that's something unique about this sport. So travel. Travel to the gunks hook up with Russ, uh, climb some super classic gunks routes out there, and just sit down and have him tell you stories. If you're interested in more stories, uh, like I said in the beginning, I'm documenting my own training. You can find that at patreon.com slash powercompanypodcast. For as little as a dollar a month, you can get extra episodes over there and follow along while I 
make a comeback. Don't call it a comeback. I don't know which it is. You decide for yourself. You can also find us at powercompanyclimbing.com. You can find us on the Instagrams, on the Facebooks, on the Pinterests, never ever on the Twitters, because as you know, we don't tweet. We scream like eagles. Yeah.